When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 130. And in this episode, we'll focus on the concept of asset protection for individuals, not businesses, um, and what are some of the ways that you can actually achieve this? Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you want a specific question answered on the podcast, contact me via Twitter or via my Facebook page. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated. To be educated about personal finances and improving your financial literacy means that you can use that information, take it to your financial advisor or planner. And that leads to the next aim, which is to be empowered. With education and literacy, you can be empowered with the knowledge that you have so you can talk to your financial advisor or credential accountant or financial planner at a level that both of you can understand in. And the third aim is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed advisor. Don't make decisions after listening to a random guy on the internet ranting about personal finance. If you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, though, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first because you're the most important person in your life. You've got to take about 20% at least of after-tax income and put it aside. That's your money, never to be touched ever again. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just put my money in index funds. Step three is wherever possible, you've got to reinvest dividends from those investments. The power of compounding after reinvesting dividends is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. Now, I don't think 5, 10 or 15 years is long term. Personally, I think at least 20, 30, if not 40 years is considered long term. The longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. Step five is wherever possible, you've got to automate these steps. Automation is key because if you automate your investments, you're less likely to forget and you're more likely to stick to the plan and stick to the long-term vision. Now, if you did these five simple steps, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before I go on to the main topic of asset protection, I had a question from Supan who asks, Hi Dev, a big fan of your podcast. I'm a doctor working in Queensland and I'm thinking of buying an investment property. Can you talk about some of the costs associated of renting it out? Thanks Supan for this question. Essentially, you're asking about the cost of being a landlord. 
Uh, I'm a landlord and um, I can tell you there are some significant costs associated with being a landlord. Uh, And I think it's a really important consideration if you're thinking of renting out your property. Now, in this case, I'll talk about traditional rentals first. Then I'll go on, because I notice you're at Doctor in Queensland, which is a tourist hotspot, um, I'll sort of go on and discuss tourism rentals such as Airbnb. Now, I won't be talking about loan repayments or interest rates because this is just part of the cost of servicing the home loans. It's purely about the cost of being a landlord. Owning and renting property is exactly like running a small business. You need to really know the numbers of incomings and outgoings. And at the end of the month, if you're short, you can deduct the shortfall from your assessable income. Uh, If you're in the black, you pay tax on the profit. And if you're neutral, then you're just stable from a taxation point of view. If you want a detailed breakdown about what specific investment property costs you can be claimed at tax time, have a listen to episode 107, where I break down the costs in a more detailed fashion. So let's talk about traditional rentals. The first thing is you've got to have insurance. You need landlord insurance. And this is in addition to building and sometimes contents insurance if you're renting out a furnished property. Now, the biggest advantage of landlord insurance is if your tenant doesn't pay or damages the property as a result of staying there, you may be eligible to claim it as part of the insurance. This was a big issue for a lot of landlords during the eviction moratorium, particularly in some states like Victoria, where tenants basically defaulted on their rent, legitimately in some cases, but certainly fraudulently in a lot of cases. So landlord insurance is usually not that expensive, and as always, it pays to shop around for the best deal. The second thing is general maintenance. The cost of maintaining the rental is usually higher than your own home. Now, that's not because, you know, the home is bad or anything like that. It's just because tenants generally don't look after the property like you do. I've rented homes before, and it just doesn't feel the same. Now that I own my own home, I probably look after it much better than I did my rentals. Now, I wasn't a bad tenant. It's just that, you know, it's an emotional attachment we have to our own home. So maintenance like leaks, building repairs, burst hot water system, or air conditioner, etc., they all add up. And in your own home, you can kind of delay those if you don't have enough money. But in a rental, you've got to fix it pretty pronto because there are some guidelines and laws about having a house, particularly in Victoria, where you need to be able to, you know, have a house which is easily rentable and livable. So you can't just say to the tenant, look, I'll fix your hot water system or your air conditioner system, you know, in the next few months. It just doesn't work like that. So maintenance is a big issue and is a big cost. You need to factor that in. The third thing is real estate agent costs. Now, most people, I mean, obviously, Zapun is a doctor, so they're not going to have time to manage their own properties. So you need to have some sort of agent to be able to do that. And there are some costs associated with it. That includes the cost of finding a tenant, listing and marketing the property, professional photographs, electricity costs during the inspections, and the fees associated with a rental agent, which can range anywhere between 3 and 7%, depending on the month. Uh, sorry, depending on the state, beg your pardon. Um, so 3 to 7% of your monthly rent um, can be going towards the estate agent cost. And they sort of manage the property, okay? So they're going to organise inspections. They're going to vet out the tenants. Um, they're going to collect your rent and then deposit it into your account. They're going to deduct their management fees. So, you know, you pay for a service. The fourth thing is you've got to think about 
costs of inspections, you know, regularly to ensure the property is maintained. Now, this is relatively negligible if it's in the same city as where you live. But if you own property interstate, the cost of visiting the property can be substantial. So those are the main four costs um, in terms of traditional rentals that you need to really think about if you're going to buy an investment property. What about tourist rentals like Airbnb? Now, the advantage of listing your home as a rental in the tourism market is that it gets let out less often, mostly during holidays, and the money made during the time that it can be let out can be quite substantial and cover the entire cost of letting, um, you know, sorry, entire cost of the actual mortgage repayments. And that, of course, depends on whether you have a home in a tourist hotspot or not. Now, the first cost to think about is the listing fees. Mostly in Airbnb, it's free. Um, but once you let it out for a tourist, um, you know, holiday, etc., then Airbnb then takes a cut out of the fees paid as rent. Usually it's between 3 and 5%, depending on the cancellation policy. I think if you have a cancellation policy which is quite restricted, Airbnb tends to take a lot more of that cut. Um, and it sounds like a really small amount, but remember, it's per rental. So if you rent it out multiple times per year, then 3 to 5% each time adds up. The second thing is, which a lot of people don't factor in, is supplies. Now, this is something a lot of people don't consider. Now, if you're renting out a tourist accommodation, you need to provide supplies, furniture, and, you know, fresh bedding, toiletries, towels, linens, soap, toilet paper. You've got to stock up the fridge, tea and coffee supplies, tissues, serviettes. So this is not something that you need to do in traditional rentals, but you need to do for holiday accommodation. And you need to do it after each time the place gets let out. So, you know, when you go to a hotel, use up those toiletries and those consumables. And when you leave, they have people that come and replenish those supplies. You need to be able to do that. So if you live in a city like, for example, Brisbane, and your holiday accommodation is in the Gold Coast, which is, you know, an hour or two drive away, then you need to be able to have a system in place that after each of those letouts, you need to go and replenish those. So you've got to factor those costs in. And of course, Part of that is your time. The third thing is technology. Now, security is a big thing, right? I mean, random people are renting your asset. So having a good security system is really important. Things like better locks, better deadbolts. Um, you may want to have a ring video doorbell or maybe security cameras outside to ensure during uh, times it's not rented. It's actually relatively safe. And I actually looked at cost of installing a property outdoor security system including infrared cameras nowadays, is anywhere between around $1,500 to $3,000, depending on the number of cameras you have, depending on, you know, um, whether it's hardwired or wireless. So, you know, the technology costs can add up. And of course, a lot of these rentals also have free Wi-Fi. So you need to have internet access. Um, I'd be pretty surprised if you're able to rent out a holiday accommodation without any Wi-Fi. I think... I think that would be pretty pretty weird if you had a rental accommodation without it. So yeah, think about all the costs associated with technology. The fourth thing is, of course, cleaning costs. You know, a lot of owners do it themselves after each let out. Um, obviously, Sapuna is a busy doctor, obviously, so I doubt that they can do it themselves. So it's likely they will need to hire a professional cleaner. So a lot of the time, if you spend extra and hire a real estate agent who specializes in particular holiday accommodations through Airbnb, then they will organize the cleaning for you. But of course, this all comes with an estate agent fees on top of the Airbnb fees. So you need to factor that in. Utilities. Now, usually traditional renters pay their own water, electricity and gas. 
So for Airbnb and holiday accommodation, the landlord is responsible. Let's face it, when you go on holidays, you're not as stingy as you may be at home. So generally, the utility bills can be higher. And of course, you can't just disconnect and reconnect during those periods of holidays. You need to have it connected for the entire year, which means you've got to pay service costs and storage costs and all that sort of stuff. So you need to factor that in. Insurance, we talked about it before. For traditional renters, you still need to get building insurance, landlord insurance, which specifically allows you to rent out to Airbnb. That's really important because you can't have landlord insurance. Some of these landlord insurance companies don't allow you to have short-term rentals. So you need to make sure you need to ask them that question. And it may actually cost you a little bit more than usual insurance. Um, And some companies, I know, may want a commercial insurance component to it as well. So, uh, and of course, Airbnb, I think, also offers insurance too as part of their rental system. So you need to check it out. And on top of it, you still need to pay the local council fees. Um, So not your traditional rates fees, but some local councils actually charge a fee for short-term rentals. You need to check with your local council. And don't forget, neighbours may also complain about short-term rentals as well. So in addition to your rates notice, you may have to pay premium because you have a short-term rental in that particular LGA. Now, that's about it. Now, I hope this clarifies um, on some of the expenses and costs you need to factor in when doing traditional rentals and compare that to holiday rentals. Um, Look, personally, I haven't had a great experience with Airbnb. Um, They have a very strict cancellation policy. It's different per accommodation. And once I actually booked an Airbnb for the first time some years ago, Um, probably my fault. I didn't actually check the fine print. Um, and the cancellation policy was that, um, you know, I only got 50% back. So when I went to cancel it, um, the host kept 50%. I was actually lost, um, a few thousand dollars when I canceled that accommodation. So it really left a really bad taste. So normally I'll just stick to traditional holiday accommodation sites, hotels and apartments through Expedia. Uh, I happened to be a gold member for that. And, it really has let me down almost never. Um, and often the cancellation for Expedia is free. Um, you know, recently I had to cancel accommodation because of the lockdown rules in Victoria and got my money back. So I tend to stick with those sort of companies, but uh, I know a lot of people love Airbnb, but um, certainly not for me. So, Supuna, hopefully that answers your question about traditional rental costs and also holiday accommodation costs. So, good luck with your property purchase and uh, stay safe out there in Queensland. I think Queensland is doing a great job with COVID. I think not many cases out there, certainly not like New South Wales or Victoria. Now to the main topic about asset protection. Um, It's a big topic. Um, Look, basically, asset protection, it's the process of guarding your wealth. Let's face it, there's a subset of people out there who are constantly preying on vulnerable people and trying to figure out ways to legally steal your assets. It happens every single day. And bad things happen to good people. That's the reality of the situation. So asset protection allows an extra layer of security, and there are a number of ways to do this. And fundamentally, asset protection falls under the process of financial planning. So this is a must-do subject if you have an appointment with your financial planner. Um, And they may actually ask some advice from your accountant and lawyer as well. So what are some of the reasons why you may want to protect your assets? Number one, divorce. This is a big topic in itself. 
Um, it's a very sensitive topic, but approximately one in two marriages in Australia end up in divorce. So divorce is a big reason and a big risk to any marriage. So protecting your assets is something to think about. The second thing is debt. Now, creditors want their bills paid, especially for secured debt. So refer to the two recent episodes I did about bankruptcy and other forms of liability um, troubles that one can get into and how it can affect your assets. So, you know, protecting your personal assets from debt is a real problem. So you need to make sure you have asset protection structures in place. Accidents. Uh, I actually looked it up. So New South Wales apparently has one of the highest litigation rates in the world for accidents, which is pretty surprising. I would have thought North American colleagues would have trumped us on that. But um, yeah, so New South Wales has a very high litigation rate for accidents. So, you know, whether it be car accidents, building site accidents, etc. So so if you're involved in an accident, particularly a car accident, and you're not insured, it's a disaster. Now, the other reasons are someone gets hurt on your property and sues you for it. The post delivery man, you know, or women trips on your garden hose, you know, watch out or the thief that's trying to steal your belongings in your house. I've heard where, you know, thieves and robbers have actually been successful in suing the owners of the property that they want to steal from. So just be aware of that. Um, The biggest one also is estate challenges after you die. It's not an uncommon source of legal battle. Um, You know, I've seen it before when I was a doctor in the aged care sector. It's amazing how many people come out of the woods when someone dies. So estate challenges and planning is really important. And those are some of the main reasons why you might want to consider thinking about protecting your assets. Now, is it a form of fraud? Is actual asset protection a form of fraud? Absolutely not. It's a legal way to insulate your assets from loss. This is very different to concealment um, or fraud or purposely hiding assets in order to save on tax or during a legal proceeding. That's a different thing. You're not doing that for taxation purposes. You're doing it to guard your wealth. So, When's a good time to protect your assets? Um, You know, just like in medicine and health, it's better not to think about protecting your heart, not to think about preventing a heart attack after the fact that you've had a heart attack. So prevention is key and is the best form of asset protection. So asset protection considerations need to be really started prior to the event of liability happens. Otherwise, it's a bit too late. So what are the three main ways of protecting one's assets? Um, so, you know, none of this is a hundred percent proof. Essentially what you're doing is adding layers of protection. You're not hundred percent protected, but the first one is family trusts. The second one is assets under a lower income spouse or what's called a low risk spouse. The third one is creating a company. And the fourth one is insurance. So let's go through each of these one by one. So family trust, that's probably the biggest one I'm going to focus on in this episode. Um, If you're really interested in what is a trust, refer to episode 61 to learn about specifics about trusts. Um, But usually in a family trust, beneficiaries are all related and sometimes can include family companies or other family trusts within the trust. And the biggest advantage of family trust is their asset protection status. And the main reason why you get that asset protection in a family trust is that the assets don't belong to the beneficiaries. And number two is the assets actually belong to the trustee who needs to use the assets for the best intentions of the beneficiary. And number three is this means any liabilities the beneficiaries has 
cannot be paid off by selling off any assets which are held and owned within the trust. Remember, the beneficiary doesn't own the asset themselves. So to highlight these principles, let's use an example to highlight it, okay? So Amy is a 55-year-old female who does not do any paid work and has personal assets worth about $10,000. Now, she's included in a family trust structure as one of the beneficiaries, and the family trust owns assets worth $5 million, which includes ETF portfolios. Now, remember, these ETFs are not actually owned by Amy. Her personal assets are only $10,000. Now, Amy's brother, Bob, and sister, Lisa, are also part of the beneficiary list in that trust. The $5 million portfolio produces an income of about $200,000 per year, which is split between the three of them. So the advantage here is that each of them get about $66,000 in gross income. So they need to pay the tax on that $66,000 based on their marginal tax rate. So there is some tax savings there because due to the family trust structure, if their marginal tax rate is low. So if any one of them had earned the entire $200,000, they would have been taxed at a high marginal rate. So one of the benefits of having a trust structure is that the income generated by the assets within the trust is distributed to the beneficiaries and gets taxed at the level of the beneficiary. It's a really important concept to understand. But the problem here is Amy, unfortunately, has a debt problem. She has an unsecured loan totaling about $100,000. Now, suppose Amy is not able to pay down that debt. She's then forced to file for bankruptcy and her creditors can then come after her personal assets and what she owns. The advantage now for Amy is it's going to be a bit more difficult for her creditors to come after her share of the $5 million portfolio because she doesn't own it. The family trust does. She just gets the distributions from the family trust. But, and that's where the asset projection lies, during the bankruptcy process, the trustee for the bankruptcy may say, well, Amy, you're getting $66,000 of income per year, so we will need to work out some payments towards your unsecured debt because you don't own anything we can sell to pay off the $100,000 of unsecured debt. So technically, even though they can't get access to those ETF portfolios owned by the trust, they can still get access to the income that's generated from those ETF portfolios that then gets distributed within the trust. And to be honest, I've actually looked into this in a great deal of detail. It still kind of doesn't completely protect Amy's assets. Um, But you get the idea here that it's going to be a little bit more difficult for the creditors to come after the trust assets. It's actually quite difficult to do that, but they can come after the income generated which is then distributed to Amy. Now, supposing in this case, there are no brothers or sisters for Amy. So, you know, Lisa and Bob don't exist, it's just Amy. And suppose the entire $5 million portfolio is owned by the trust and the sole beneficiary is Amy. And suppose Amy then meets someone and gets married. And suppose she's been married for about 10 years. Then unfortunately, due to a relationship background, her new partner files a claim for her assets. Then... There is some protection for Amy because the assets are held under the family trust and not by her personally. Now, if Amy and her new husband over that 10 years have accumulated assets together, 
then the partner has every right to go after those assets. Um, again, the nuances of this is that it adds a layer of protection to the family trust, and it's never 100%. Now, lastly, let's use another example. Supposing Amy had two children who happened to be part of the beneficiary list of her family trust, same situation. She's now married to a new partner. Then Amy dies. What happens to her estate? Now, due to the deceased estates rule, normally they don't cover the family trust. So her children are relatively protected as she still are the beneficiaries. So remember, Amy doesn't own the $5 million portfolio, the trust does. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about how a family trust can be used to protect your assets. And that's pretty much it about family trust. Now, it does cost a fair bit of money to create and maintain a family trust. So check with your accountant or lawyer for more specific advice, but it might be worth it for you. Now, the second way to protect your assets is what's called a low-risk spouse. And basically, it means owning assets in the lower-risk spouse, which is often a very easy solution for asset protection, assuming the relationship with the spouse is healthy. There's always going to be spousal risk. So how does this work practically? So here's an example. Amy is a surgeon and her partner, Richard, works at a bank. They both have equal share in the family home. Amy has a partnership in a surgical practice with other surgeons. Over the years, Amy's surgical practice booms along with their business partnerships. And this also brings more liabilities, which means more creditors. Amy has to buy more practice space, more practice locations, and also a new state-of-the-art Molmat machine, which costs a few million dollars. And this means more business assets. As Amy is a partner in the surgical practice... Amy will be personally liable for any business debts. If she cannot service the business debt, then creditors can come after her personal assets. Now, in this case, Richard would be considered a low-risk spouse. So, after analysing their risk situation, they decide to transfer 100% of the ownership of the family home to Richard. If something were to happen to Amy's surgical practice then creditors may not be able to seize the family home in pursuit of the debt money because the family home is now owned entirely by Richard. Again, this is more complex. Sometimes you need to seek independent advice, but I've just you know, created a simple scenario where I've provided a high-level overview of the situation where how the family home being transferred into the low-risk spouse has protected the family home, which means even if Amy gets into trouble from a surgical practice, the business creditors can't go after a family home, technically. So that's the low-risk spouse option. Now, the third way of reducing your risk and protecting your assets is by creating a proprietary limited company. So how does that strategy work? Now, if you're a sole trader or have a business as a partnership, then your personal assets may be at risk if something happens to your business. A business creditor can come after your personal assets to settle any business debts which are unpaid. Now, one way to avoid this risk is setting up a company structure for your business. And this means your personal assets are one step away from the business creditors. So again, adding a layer of protection. This means if your company is sued for outstanding business debts, they can seize any company assets to pay back the debts, but may not easily gain access to your personal assets. 
Now, the bankruptcy episode I covered recently only covers personal bankruptcy and it doesn't cover company bankruptcy. Maybe I'll do an episode in the future about it because company bankruptcies are actually regulated by ASIC, Australian Securities Investment Commission. Now, again, it's not as simple as protecting your personal assets if you have a business under a company structure because, you see, companies are owned by shareholders. So if a creditor comes after a company debt, it may be difficult for them to come after your personal assets. But if someone comes after your personal assets, you're a shareholder in your own company, which means it may provide them access to your company and its assets. So the risk works the other way too. So let me just explain that again so that... A lot of people think that creating a company means that if the business creditors can't really come after your personal assets, and I get that because they need to come after the company debts and basically you can lose your company, but you can potentially protect your personal assets. But if someone comes after your personal assets and you own a company, then potentially the risk works the other way as well. So they can potentially come after your company assets using you as a leeway, as a entrance pathway by suing you for your personal assets. So and again, if someone comes after your personal assets, you're a shareholder of your company, which means it may provide them access to your company as assets. So you can actually lose your company through the other way as well. So the risk works both ways. So it's really important that you understand that before you go ahead and only think about protecting your personal assets and creating a company structure. Now, the last way to protect your assets is having insurance, right? I've covered personal insurance before in episode five. I've answered some common questions in various episodes since then, and more recently in the Q&A. I went through some major changes which are happening in income protection insurance in Australia, particularly from the next few weeks in October 2021. So check it out if you haven't already. Now, having insurance means income protection, life insurance, TPD, trauma insurance, which means you'll have some income to service any debts which are secured against your assets, such as your home. So you can actually protect your home by actually paying off those debts. Uh, or if you have shared portfolios, you have enough you know, money you know, guarded against that. Of course, other types of asset protection insurance include home and contents, building insurance, car insurance, various loan protection insurances. So you know, personally, I would regularly review the need and level of cover for the insurances so I don't get caught out. So recently, I'll tell you an experience that I had my car insurance all of a sudden went up by about 600 bucks. I rang up the insurance company and I said, why is, why is it going up by 600 bucks? And they said, oh, you know, because of claims and all that sort of stuff. I mean, when they say claims, they're not talking about me claiming. They're talking about generally, you know, floods or fires or, uh, you know, things that other people have claimed about, which kind of, you know, spreads the risk for the entire population. So I said to them, look, you need to do better. And they said, yep, they'll do better. And they came back with a $100 difference and they gave me a you know cheaper quote. So I held that quote uh, and I rang up a couple of other companies and it was pretty simple. They basically beat that quote by 600 bucks. Um, so essentially I got the same insurance, um, comprehensive of course, and you know free windshield cover and all that sort of stuff for exactly the same price of last year. And my current company wanted to raise those fees by 600 bucks. And I said, well, that's not acceptable. So loyalty doesn't pay. So make sure that you haggle, make sure you ring them up and make it very clear that you are ready to change companies if they don't do anything about it. In this particular case, they couldn't do anything about it. So I just changed companies. Uh, and it literally only take me, took me about an hour or two to sort this out. So potentially I saved 600 bucks for about a couple of hours of work. 
So that's income per unit time saved of about 300 bucks an hour. It's not bad. So, you know, loyalty doesn't pay. Now, just before I finish up about this asset protection episode, I just want to highlight some common myths when it comes to asset protection. Number one, it's only for the rich people. It's not. If you're rich, you're more likely to be able to pay off any creditors and deal with any litigation and simply move on. If you're middle class or poor, your assets have more utility for you. So potentially one can argue that it's far more important to protect your assets during your early stages of wealth creation and building than the latter one. So asset protection is not only for the rich. Number two is it's only for business owners that need asset protection. Absolutely not. Anyone that owns an asset is a target for losing their assets. So it's important to consider personal asset protection even if you're not a business owner. Granted, I did use business examples previously when talking about trust and company structures, but asset protection is not just for businesses. It's for personal assets as well. Number three is professional indemnity insurance is enough. I get a lot of this from doctors who think that their MDO is going to cover their personal assets. No, they will not cover. For example, as a doctor, you know, we all have professional indemnity insurance and this protects us from any litigation, from medical legal claims, etc., right? no matter how valid the complaint is or not. But that professional indemnity doesn't cover if you're in a car accident and if it's your fault and causes injury to others due to reckless driving or whatever it is. So if someone trips on your front yard, for example, and decides to sue you, it doesn't protect you against that. So your professional indemnity insurance is only for professional issues. It's not for personal issues. The fourth myth is, I can just transfer assets to less riskier members. Well, yeah, you can do that, but this only works if you did it prior to any claims. Once the claim has been started, then you're still at risk and you're still liable. Number five is company structures are ultimate protections, and I talked about it before. They are not ultimate protections. Basically, company creditors may be shielded against personal assets, but any personal litigation claims are not shielded against going after your shares in the company, which you are a part owner of, so it's pretty simple there. And number six is asset protection is illegal. It's not. This is a common misunderstanding. Asset protection is completely legal. You're not allowed to hide assets or commit asset fraud. That is illegal. And uh, no doubt Australia is becoming more and more litigious. Litigious, beg your pardon. So um, asset protection absolutely makes sense. And that's something to think about. So that's it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or please leave a five-star rating on all the platforms. That's even better. And make sure you actually type in a review. Please leave a positive review. In that theme, here is a review that I found on castbox.fm. Hi, Devraga. I've been enjoying listening to your episodes during the New South Wales lockdown. It really has opened my eyes to getting my finances in order and towards fire. Thank you very much for the service you're doing through this podcast. Like someone mentioned below, I think they must be talking about the comments, but I'm interested in a topic in relation to what is better, investment property or ETF index fund. I have an underperforming investment property in Victoria. Average appreciation per annum is around 5% over 20 years. I think they mean 5% uh, per annum there. And they inherited it from their parents. It seems like a no-brainer to sell it and put the funds in an index fund and bearing consequences of CGT, which I'll be taxed at the highest rate. I'd love to hear more topics on this and CGT, tips how to mitigate it in future episodes. If you have any tips or factors to consider related to my situation, I'd love to hear it too. Now, um, uh, the person I think is anonymous, so I'm not credentialed financial advisor, so I can't provide a financial advice for your specific situation. But 
thanks very much for the great feedback and stay safe, please, during the New South Wales lockdowns. Look, to answer your question in brief, property versus shares basically is what you're asking. It's broadly a very complex question, but I'll do an episode specific to this. I think it's coming up in the next one or two episodes. Um, But I'll leave you thinking about this, right? When you buy property, you're buying a building on one street in one suburb, in one city, in one state, in one country. There's nothing diverse about this. And there are expenses to consider such as council rates, water rates, maintenance, letting fees that I've talked about um, earlier in this episode. And what I've learned over the last 12 years of investing is my stock portfolio, my index fund portfolio has never asked me to pay the council rate, has never asked me to fix the plumbing, has never asked me to perform any maintenance. Now, I've never had to pay land taxes on my index fund portfolio. I've never had to pay stamp duty when I bought my index funds. Having said this, I also don't borrow money to invest in the stock market. Now, the advantage of buying property is leverage, which in itself has its risks and benefits, and I've done episodes on this before. So what I will tell you is my personal view is I don't like property as much as I like my index fund portfolio. And, you know, I have, you know, thought about it and I think I'll do a detailed analysis on the pros and cons of shares versus property. Like I said, it's probably coming up next or the next couple of episodes. And lastly, I don't think your personal home that you live in, although your question was about investment property, but your personal home that you live in is not an investment. Why? Because an investment has to fulfill two things. It has to increase in value over time. And it has to pay an income during that time. And your principal price of residence doesn't do both. So therefore, in my humble opinion, I don't think your own home that you live in is an investment. But stay tuned for the next couple of episodes and I'll talk about shares versus property. And you may actually be surprised in the long term what actually outperforms. Now, thanks very much for the great topic suggestion and always positive feedback is great. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to my podcast. We're in the top 20 of Australia for investing. So let's get to top number one. Is that possible for a random doctor? Maybe. Remember to like the Devraga Facebook page. Shout out to questions and comments and topic suggestions. And please share this channel and episodes via Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Spotify, Google, Anchor, whatever. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life. And learn about asset protection. Are you at risk? We all are. This is Devaraga Personal Finance, episode 130. And as always, now more than ever, please stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.